You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. What a beautiful God we serve. That he would be our righteousness. Come on. Perfect, spotless righteousness. I don't know how much time you spend reflecting on these sort of things. I don't know if you have the same neuroses I do. But man, we are not righteous, huh? Not even one of us. And yet Jesus is. And God sees fit to look upon his righteousness and pardon us. What a gift. What a God we serve. Amen. Good morning, church. Continuing our time in the Gospel of Mark today. I don't know how many of you got to join us Wednesday at Revive, but it was such a sweet night of refreshment in the Spirit. And I'm, I don't know about you guys, but it kind of seems like we're just keeping that Holy Spirit party going this morning. I'm, I'm into it. Uh, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 12 today, continuing our study through there. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I don't have... Much of a catchy introduction this morning. We're just going to go straight to it. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have house Bibles around the room at the end of each row. And we, I know we say this each week, but I'm serious about this. We just really care about God's people having access to God's Word. And so if you don't have a Bible today, please grab one of those. And if you don't have one at all, take one of those home or talk to one of our pastors and we'll get you a nicer one. Um, so we're in Mark. Thank you for that. I do have a little bit of a sore throat. I needed the drink. You can't see it. A drink rolled down to me. That was a terrible joke. It's <laughs> theater seating. They roll, came right to me. It's like a gift. Uh, so we're in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to start the reading today uh, in verse 18, where it says this. And the Sadducees came to him, him being Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. We could just pause right there for a minute and think about that level of rebuke from Jesus. But when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, this morning as we discuss your word, we ask that, that you would illuminate your text to us, that we would hear your truth spoken to us this morning. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us and draw us to the life we need this morning in you. God, I'm just so confident that you have something fresh 
to speak to us, to challenge us with, to encourage us with this morning. So God, I pray that we would be quiet enough and present enough to hear that from you today. Jesus, may the words of our mouths, may the thoughts in our minds, may they be acceptable to you today. In your precious name we pray these things, amen. So, we're in this larger section of Mark, right? Where what theologians call the Passion Week. So, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's completed his ministry in Galilee. He's traveled down to Jerusalem. And now we're following Jesus' religious public engagement in the city of Jerusalem for the week leading up to his crucifixion. And essentially, we've already said this a couple times, so I'll go through this kind of briefly. What we've essentially seen is that Jesus is using his time in Jerusalem to critique and cast judgment on the worship of God in the temple, the entire temple worship system. So Jesus enters Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple, and so far in Mark, all he's done is come back to the temple and essentially pick apart their practices and how hypocritical they are and how they keep people from the true worship of God instead of fostering the true worship of God. And in this tiny section, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the different people who make up what's called the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council, are coming to Jesus group by group and trying to challenge him and discredit him. Now, this was a really common practice. These, these rabbis would do these kind of public back and forth debates with clever questions and proof texting and, and all these different things. Some, somewhere, I said this last week, somewhere right in the middle between a rap battle and a theological debate is, is where they are right now. Just going back and forth. And these groups are coming up and they're challenging Jesus. We've already seen the high priests come up and basically say, who the heck do you think you are that you're teaching in the temple like this? And Jesus shoots them down. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him. These strange bedfellows of opposite theological views come to him with this trap about taxes. And they think, we're going to discredit this guy from his followers. And Jesus finesses around them and is like, boom, dunked, get out of here. And, and sends them packing. And today, we see the Sadducees challenge Jesus with this question about the resurrection. And I'm going to get into this. I think there's something really cool here, but we got we to gotta do a little bit of legwork to put ourselves in the mindset, the theological and social mindset of the first century Jewish person for just a minute, if that's okay. So I apologize if this is kind of boring for a second, but we need this to get where we're going. So the political theological landscape of Jews in the first century was dominated by these different parties or schools of thought. Think similar to like a modern American political party, but this isn't just social opinions. It's mixed together with social, political, and theological opinions. These things all intermix into these different parties. And so we see, you, you, you hear about these throughout Scripture. The Pharisees are the ones we hear about the most because Jesus was from the region where the Pharisees had most of their power and where a lot of the prominent Pharisaical teachers were in Galilee. But there's also groups like the Zealots who were essentially like Jewish ISIS. Like they were doing like terror attacks to try and kick the Romans out. There were the Essenes who were essentially like monks and they went off in the desert and separated themselves and wrote tons of theology. The Dead Sea Scrolls. 
If you guys have heard about those, were written by the Essene Jews. You have the scribes, who were these highly educated folk who had jobs within the official structure of the worship in the synagogues and in the temples, keeping records. And then you have uh, the Herodians, who we talked about, the Pharisees, who we talked about, and the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are an interesting group of cats. Uh, they're, they're pretty much centered in Jerusalem. And their power centers around the temple itself. The Sadducees are highly educated, kind of urban social elites, right? Think of these as like the modern sophisticates living in downtown Manhattan. And they have control over most of what goes on in the temple in Jerusalem. So uh, the Pharisees, the two biggest parties are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees have more control outside Jerusalem in, in areas like Galilee. The Sadducees have way more control inside Jerusalem, specifically at the temple. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees differ on a couple things, but it's really interesting. And you know, we talked last week about how the Pharisees were really conservative, right? They were really socially conservative. Their main purpose was to call God's people back to radical obedience to God's commands so that they could lift God's wrath and receive freedom from God's divine punishment through the Roman oppression. So they were very socially conservative. We need to go back to the old ways. We need to live like our forefathers did. We need to live like real Jews, right? But what's interesting about that is their social conservatism actually made them theologically very liberal. And here's what I mean by that. The Pharisees added tons of texts to the canon. So they held to the teachings of the fathers, the teachings of the rabbis, the teachings of the theologians, uh, things like the Talmud, as essentially part of Scripture, and they allowed them to speak into their life and practice. This is actually Jesus' main critique of the Pharisees, is they add man-made burdens to God's teaching. And so even though we look at the Pharisees' legalism and their strict, just like conservative, austere lifestyle, theologically they were very progressive. They believed and taught all sorts of things that couldn't actually be taught or proved out of just the scriptures, because they added to it. The Sadducees form this kind of polar opposite. Socially, they're much more liberal than the Pharisees. They regularly and fully interact with the Roman government. They, they essentially function as the middleman between the Roman government and the Jewish people through the temple worship. So some of the critiques that Jesus levies against the temple worship about uh, how profaned it's been through money changers in the courts and the whole argument centered around paying taxes, a lot of those things come back to decisions the Sadducees made to keep the temple open over in the midst of oppressive Roman rule. So socially, the Sadducees by most people are seen to be in bed with the Romans, and yet theologically they're incredibly conservative. The Sadducees rejected all texts and all forms of revelation except for Torah, except for the Old Testament. And really, beyond that, they, they, a lot of the Sadducees even taught that really the Pentateuch, the first five, that scripture and the rest of them are commentary on Pentateuch. 
So they were, they were very conservative. So when it says here, the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. This is absolutely true. The Sadducees had some of these beliefs. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead or the afterlife or glory with God. They didn't believe in supernatural beings like angels and demons. And the reason was because they said, prove it to me out of Torah. I don't see it. I don't see it in there. You're telling me there's a resurrection from the dead. You're telling me there's eternal life. I don't see it in God's actual scripture to us. Which, by the way, that's very uh, actually thoughtful on their part. The idea of the resurrection that we hold to as believers is cut and dry in the New Testament. You can't get away from it. You can't get away from it in Jesus' teaching or Paul's letters or anything in the New Testament. Paul, in fact, went so far, we're going to read this a little later. Paul went so far as to say in 1 Corinthians, if there's no resurrection, this whole thing is pointless. Right? It's very, very clear in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, not so much. It's hard to proof text the idea of eternal life and communion with God from just Torah. Now there are some allusions to it. You can look in several different passages. Jesus picks one of those that kind of seem like the authors are assuming the idea of resurrection and eternal life with God. But there's no place in the Old Testament that bluntly affirms this truth. So the Sadducees rejected it. Same thing with angels and demons. They said, ah, I just don't see it. There's a couple of places in Scripture where God appears to people and speaks, but that's Him. That's not, that's not some other classification of creature. And when, it's in, in, and when it says things like the messenger of God, they would look at that and go, well, that's the manifestation of God's Spirit. Maybe he didn't appear in bodily form. That's his spirit. And so they say, you can't really proof text that stuff. We don't believe in all these angels and demons and stuff. That's, that's kind of hooey that was added later. Which, by the way, if you get into the teachings the Pharisees held, the Talmudic teachings, teachings of the fathers, those things are really clear in there. So it makes a ton of sense why the Pharisees would say, these things are true, and the Sadducees are like, no, you're crazy. You're adding to the Bible. So the Pharisees... The theological conservatives of their day, which, by the way, I've I got to pause here for just a second. Jesus gives pretty much his strongest rebuke in all of the scripture here. Like, there's a couple places where Jesus gets this intense, but Jesus is really intense here. He's at, he's at kind of the top of his level in terms of slamming someone down when he rebukes the Sadducees. And we're going to talk about why. But I want to, I just, I just think it's important to point out that you can be more theologically conservative than Jesus. And that's probably, not probably, that's not a good place to be. Right? It's important to note that. That this, this group of professional theologians who saw themselves as faithfully and accurately and conservatively parsing the text and protecting the doctrines and teachings of the text, Jesus says, you are wrong. And you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Let us, uh, some of us I think probably today, just need to take that as a caution. That we not live more conservatively than Jesus does. Right? So, anyway, this is what's going on. These, this group of people, these, these guys who are super educated, who are the urbanites, the, the cool hipsters, the religious leaders... They come up to Jesus and they go, hey, we got one for you, teacher. So Moses teaches, remember, 
they, they really hold on to Pentateuch as like the authority of Scripture. And so they go back to the Pentateuch. They go back to Deuteronomy 25 and what's called uh, Levite marriage. And they say, listen, the Scripture teaches that if a couple dies, if a husband dies and hasn't born any kids, his brothers have to marry the widow to raise up kids so that he has offspring. Right? Which this is an established clear black and white law. It's seen a couple different times in, in Torah, but specifically spelled out in Deuteronomy 25. You can look it up. It's the first like 10 verses. And it's a really important law theologically and practically for the Jewish people. So if you remember, God's connection to the Jewish people is all caught up in this idea of his covenant blessing. And part of the covenant blessing is the land he gave them in Israel, right? And God cared about that peace so much, he put all these really strict laws in place about how you could and couldn't transfer land. In fact, he cared about the inheritance of the promised land that he'd given to his people so much that he put a law in place called Jubilee that says, even if things go terrible and you're desperate and you're starving and you have to sell off your land, at some point it's coming back to your family. Because that land is the physical expression of my blessing and my covenant on my people. And so it will not be separated from them. It's a big deal. And so this idea of, of preserving the inheritance line is really important. <clears throat> if a guy dies before he has children, his brother marries the widow and raises up children in his name so that his children will inherit his land and continue the covenant promise of God. It's a big deal. And so the Sadducees say, hey, this is a law and it's important and we all acknowledge this, but look how it messes up the idea of resurrection. If some guy dies and then his brother marries his wife and then say that happens seven times, when they get to heaven, who the heck's going to be married to who? That'll be confusing, Right? And, and they think, it's so important to point this out here with each one of these interactions. They think they're so clever. They're like, what do you think about that, Jesus? What are you going to do about it? Which is amazing, because it's just like, well, I mean, he wrote it, you know? Like, he just knows it better than you. Sorry, dude. So Jesus responds with this really intense rebuke. You don't understand God's word or God's power. That's why you miss this. Oh, what an intense rebuke. They've missed the gospel truth because they don't understand the scriptures and they don't understand the, the power of God. Now, keep in mind, he's speaking this to some of the most famed, authoritative, trained theologians of all of his people. He's speaking this to the religious leaders, the shepherds of God's people who steward the temple worship. And he says, you don't even know the scriptures, much less the power of God. Of course you miss elementary stuff like this. That's intense. Beloved of God, the church of Jesus, may we never hear that rebuke from our Savior. And let that sit with you for a minute. Because these are not crazies who hate God, who hate his people, who hate the scripture. These are passionate 
trained theologians who care about God, care about his promises, care about his word, and they have missed him. And they have missed him so completely that God himself stands in their presence and rebukes them for their poor stewardship of shepherding his people. This should sit heavy with you. Because if I'm honest, beloved, we are a tiny little church in the midst of a community with a lot of lost people. And according to Jesus' words in Matthew 28, you have been entrusted the stewardship of the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation. That You get to declare who Jesus is to a lost world around you. You get to steward the message of the gospel. We are shepherds to lost sheep. And here Jesus is rebuking his under-shepherds, saying, you have done a poor job. And that should sit with us. That's not where we're ending today. But it needs to be said. We need to think about that. You need to dwell on how God himself might answer to your stewardship of the declaration of his gospel to a lost and hurting world in desperate need of him. You need to reflect on that. So Jesus rebukes them. And he he rebukes them in this really cool way. It's super blunt. He's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand scripture. You don't understand the power of God. And then he goes on to, to basically prove those two points. You don't understand the scripture. You say Torah is authoritative, that the Pentateuch is God's word. Well, it says in Exodus chapter 6 that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So get out of here. Right? So he grabs their text that they believe is authoritative. And he says, look, it says it right there. And there's something really interesting about Jesus' rebuke here. And I'm not going to derail us here. But I am going to mention it, because I think it's interesting. Um, Jesus' use of this text, you can look it up, it's in Exodus 6, I believe. Jesus' use of this text is really interesting, because it wouldn't be accepted in any hermeneutics class in a modern-day seminary. Uh, It would be called eisegetical, which if you don't know what that word means, don't worry about it. We're not going to talk about that today, but I think it's interesting. And if you're someone who geeks out on theology and you want to get out over a coffee and and talk about uh, how Jesus's methodology of interpreting scripture would be not accepted in a modern day seminary. I'd love to do that sometime. But I want to point that out. But set that aside for a second because it's it's not the point of where we're going today. But Jesus gives this argument and essentially what he says is God is eternal and God has made this covenant relationship with people where they get to experience intimate connection with him. He made that in a promise to Abraham, and Abraham experienced it, and in a promise to Isaac, and a promise to Jacob, and a promise to God's people. He made this promise. I am with you. I am your God. I will be with you. And if God is eternal, and he offers relationship with himself to creatures through a covenant promise, then they actually have to survive to experience the blessing, or God is a liar. This is the essence of Jesus' argument. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because God is eternal and inherent in his promise is connection with him. And as we know from the Psalms, dead people don't do much praising of the Lord. Right? So Jesus says this. He says, 
He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So you missed it. It's in the text. You say you know the text. You don't know the text. And then he goes on. You don't know the power of God. And I love this piece. Because he basically says, you think, you think it'll work that way in eternity? You think they're going to raise from the dead and God's going to be like, oh shoot, you were married seven times. What do we do? He's like, you're ridiculous. He's God. It's going to be, it's going to be totally different. It's going to be like nothing you've experienced. And he uses this phrase, they will be like the angels of heaven. Which is just an extra little jab because the Sadducees didn't believe angels were real. But he says, you don't know God's power. He's not limited by our experience now. It's not like you'll wake up in the resurrection and things will be just like they are now. It will be new and different I love the way David Garland, a Baptist theologian, says this. He says, One may guess that death must be something very much like birth. Before birth, the child is totally surrounded in what is a safe and warm environment and gets all of his life from his mother. But he does not see his mother. When birth comes, it must be quite a shock to the child. The baby leaves the safe and warm confines of the mother's womb and enters into a harsh, bright, cold world. But we know that only after birth is the child able to see its mother and be held and kissed. In life on this earth, we are totally surrounded by God who sustains our very lives. And yet God remains invisible to us. When death comes to each of us, it may be a shock to the system. We may be scared and we may fight it. But afterwards, we will see the God who gives us life and nourishes us and gives us life again. Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. If you think God's eternal plan can be crushed by some witty little technicality you came up with, And you have no clue who this God is. If you think he would be tripped up by that, if you think his purposes could be messed up by something witty you thought of, then you think way more highly of yourself than you think of God. Right? And he ends it by saying, you are quite wrong. You are quite wrong. That's intense. Jesus, it's, it's interesting. When Jesus rebukes the other groups, he's pretty blunt. And he, he pretty much disarms them publicly. But here you see a little more, I think, emotion in Jesus' response. When he responds to the Pharisees and the Herodians, which, by the way, just to, for those of you who are theology geeks, to let this just bake your noodle a little bit. Jesus is rebuking the Sadducees by theologically aligning himself with the Pharisees. Just so you know. Uh, because Jesus taught in the rabbinic tradition of the Pharisees. He just rebuked and critiqued it and made it actually reflect what the Bible teaches. Which is really weird to think about. But anyway, when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Herodians, there's this finesse to it. You see this kind of like, just kind of this back and forth and this kind of really just like beauty and swagger to how he does it. 
When he rebukes the Sadducees, he straight up knocks these guys down. He's like, get out of here. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're wrong. You don't know the scripture. You don't know God. Get out of here. And it doesn't record their response. Probably because they weren't amazed at his words. (laughs) Right? Jesus' rebuke for them is so strong. And it's really beautiful why it's so strong. Jesus' rebuke against the Sadducees is so intense. Because these are God's shepherds. These men are accountable for loving and leading God's people. For stewarding his temple, which in this day, under the covenant with which they were under, that is the method by which God connects to people. It's, it's the method by which people can be sure that their sins are atoned for and their God is in communion with them. Go back and read Leviticus. The temple worship is weird to us because there's blood and liver, livers and guts and It's super weird, but it was such a gift for God's people. Because God said, when you sin, do this, and we will be good. You can know. There's never a question. You never have to sit at home and go, oh man, is God upset with me? Is this thing happening with my child or my crop because God is angry? You never have to live in that world because if there's something between us, here is how you can reconcile it. That, that system was a gift for God's people. And Jesus shows up to the temple and sees how that gift has been distorted into death. How what was a gift and a means of grace and life has become a means of oppression and a means of destruction. And he looks at those shepherds and says, you did this. And he holds them accountable for how they stewarded God's people. And he rebukes them for their terrible, destructive, separating, isolating teaching. Guys, Jesus is upset about the Sadducees' rejection of the the resurrection because that is so fundamental to the, the gospel itself. God is eternal. And he's called his creation into eternal relationship with him. He's called them into actual life with him, not so they can have an okay life in a really crappy broken world, but so they can actually have life with him. It's it's the entire design, the entire purpose is intimacy and life and joy with him. And Jesus looks at these men who have been set up as the stewards and shepherds of that beautiful divine plan. And he says, you are keeping people from this. You are not guiding them in. You're closing the door. And you're teaching them incorrectly. And you're teaching them that the very thing I made them for doesn't even exist. Beloved, there's no good proof text for the resurrection. And we're like, well, there is, because we have the New Testament. There's no proof for the resurrection. No one has come back and been like, guys, I took my iPhone with me. Let me show you the pictures. And please, 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 don't come to me after this gathering 
and talk to me about some kid who saw heaven while under surgery. Listen, I geek out over theology. Not that. Let's not, let's not go there. No one has come back and talked to us about it. There's no proof for eternal resurrected life with Jesus. But it's his promise. It's his promise and it's, it's the foundational promise. In the invitation of the gospel is to believe that what God says he actually means. The invitation of the gospel is that when God makes a promise, that promise is already yes and it's already amen. Garland, the same theologian, says this. Belief in the resurrection does not derive from what we can prove. Our faith in the resurrection is based on our faith in the power of God and that alone. Our hope cannot be based on human egoism that longs to survive the grave, but only in God who makes the dead alive. Beloved, the the gospel message is that God is actually trustworthy. And He actually cares about you. And He actually sees you in your death and your sin. And He says, I have something better for you. All you need to do is take it. I have something better for you. You can trust me. It's right over here. You can have it. This is the gospel invitation. And the Sadducees are creating a wall against this. I referenced this earlier. Hear this, these words from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And we even are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. And if He did not raise, that it's true the dead are not raised. And if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, well they've perished. If in Christ we have hope for this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, and by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. And as in Adam all have died, in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then at the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Beloved, 
The promise of the resurrection, simply put, is the promise of the gospel. And Jesus cared about that. That's his entire message. Remember this, for all these chapters leading up when he's moving from Galilee to Jerusalem, he's been saying, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah the way you think I am. I'm not here to raise up an army and defeat Rome, because honestly, that's not what Jesus cares about. He's there to raise the dead. He's there to establish a kingdom that is eternal, that offers life and freedom and joy to all people. God is doing something new in Christ. And that new thing is resurrection. And so Jesus cares when that, when that is broken and misrepresented. And this is where we're going to land the plane, because I think this is important. The reason Jesus cares is because he is such a better shepherd than the Sadducees were, than the Pharisees were, than the chief priests were, than I am, than we are. Beloved, Jesus is a true shepherd. In John 10, he speaks about his identity as the true shepherd and speaks of us as God's sheep who will hear his voice and come to him. Beloved God cares for you. He cares for you. We're not going to read it, but what I love about the image in John 10 is that Jesus says, he says, you know, a hired hand runs the minute danger shows up. He's not going to die for a couple sheep. If a bear or a wolf or robbers show up, he's out of there and the sheep are scattered and killed. But these are my sheep. I'm not a hired hand. They belong to me. And so I will gladly die for them. Beloved, this is your Jesus. Your true shepherd, your better shepherd who cares for you so much that when he sees things that lead you astray or harm you or block your path from where you are to where he is, he gets angry and he rebukes and destroys the obstacles that keep his children from him. Beloved, I know that a lot of us have been led at different points in our life in ways that are destructive and hurtful. And we've seen just how human humans can be when leadership and authority is abused. But you need to know something. When Jesus offers himself to you as your shepherd, as your guide, as your leader, he is a good shepherd. He is trustworthy. When he promises things to you, you can joyfully rest in those promises. So I'm going to end out by just reading this passage. This is one of the most well-known passages in the Scripture. I'm going to read it to us, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to open up this space for us to take communion and pray over each other and pray over the church and find people in the room we need to confess to or pray with or be with. And I want us to take a few minutes during that time as the song is playing, as the room is just kind of full of that that noise and that energy and that murmur of people walking around, I'm going to ask that we, we use that space to reflect. 
on just how good our Jesus is. And how glorious His gospel is. He has promised you life. He has promised you resurrection. He has promised you peace and absolution from your sin and life that is abundant. He has promised you freedom. And His promises are true because He's good. And His guidance is true because He's good. Hear this, beloved. The Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Beloved, we fear no evil, for he is with us. Your rod and your staff, they are a comfort to me. You prepare a table before me in the very presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, beloved. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, you are so good to us. Your promises are so sweet to us. Your care is so kind to us. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We love the things of this world. We, we love the sin and hurt around us. We mistrust the good heart of you, our shepherd, who calls us. We hear your voice and we know it's you. And yet, our hearts pause to trust you, to rest in your goodness. But God, you are a good shepherd. And you guide us. And you care for us. And you make a way for us. And you destroy obstacles between us and you. Jesus, this morning we ask that you would destroy some of those obstacles in our hearts. As we partake in the elements together and reflect on your body broken in the bread and your blood poured out in the juice, God, we ask, we ask that you would destroy the barriers between us. That we would be a people who rest in your goodness, trust in your promises, and follow after your voice. Jesus, we love you. So we pray these things in your name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.